Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Sonia, let's uh, pray for God's help as we think about the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a speaking God, a God who has revealed yourself to us in your Son, the Word made flesh, and in the written Word before us. We pray that as we think about this passage, perhaps one that's familiar to many of us, perhaps not so familiar to some, uh, that you would encourage us, instruct us, and transform us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you weren't here last week, we started a new sermon series called A Meal with Jesus. I mentioned part of the impetus for this series a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Psalm 34, but since that day was the day after New Year's Day and some of you were still in Christmas hibernation, let me state again the rationale for this series. It's booting off the fact that there are three ways that the New Testament completes the sentence that begins, the Son of Man came. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. And those two statements are statements of purpose. They, they tell us what Jesus came to do, what he came to achieve. But there's a third way that sentence is completed, and it comes right before our passage today. Luke chapter 7, verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The third, this third statement is different from the other two because it's a statement not of purpose, but of method. The question is, how did Jesus come? And the answer is, he came eating and drinking. That if you want to know the way of Jesus building community, the way of Jesus evangelizing, discipling, um, mission, here it is, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So what we're doing in this uh, series is looking at six stories in Luke's gospel of Jesus eating with people. And the reason we're looking at Luke's gospel is because Luke focuses more on incidents of Jesus eating with people than any of the other gospels. In fact, Luke pays so much attention to people eating that one scholar put it like this. He said, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So last week, uh, Jeremy started us on this series with the meal with Levi, the tax collector, uh, is an incident recorded by Luke, but also by some of the other gospel writers. But today's incident is only recorded by Luke. And the account comes right after that verse, that per statement of uh, method verse that I read a moment ago. Here's the verse in full, Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was being accused of being a party animal, hanging out with all the wrong kind of people. And so you figure, well, Luke's going to, you know, he's writing the gospel here. He's going to set the record straight, right? He's going to tell us that Jesus isn't like that, that Jesus would never knowingly associate with those kinds of people. No, Jesus, he, he wants to hang out with, with religious people who steer clear of the pagan riffraff, Right? Well, if that was the memo, Luke never got it, because having presented the accusation going around about Jesus being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, he then gives an account of Jesus being a friend of sinners. And just to emphasize that this is who Jesus uh, chooses to associate with, it all happens at a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee, one of the religious establishment. Most, if not all, of our Bibles put the focus in the heading to this passage on the, the sinful woman here, but there are actually three people involved in this story, as you may have heard as Sonia read it for us. One is obviously Jesus, one is obviously the sinful woman, but we need to also recognize the importance in this account of Simon the Pharisee, because most of Jesus' conversation in this story is with Simon. Jesus actually only addresses the woman once, and that's towards the end of the passage. But in, in the midst of this dialogue with Simon the Pharisee, Luke sets the table, as it were, of this account as a contrast between the woman and the Pharisee. It's a contrast, as we'll see, between two people, two debtors, as we might put it, both of whom who show interest in Jesus, but one who gets spurned and one who gets affirmed. And that, I hope, gets our interest, because I'm guessing that if you're here today or if you're watching online today, you at least have some interest in Jesus. He's not totally irrelevant to any of our lives. 
In fact, I think we could go so far as to say that all of us find something intriguing, something attractive about him. And Jesus shows us in what he says to Simon at this banquet that there's a way to show interest in Jesus that he welcomes and a way to show Jesus interest that he critiques. And what it boils down to is this. Here's our sermon in a sentence today, that with Jesus, it's not enough to seek the message without the messenger. You need both. We're going to look at this in three parts today. First of all, the scandal. Secondly, the parable. And thirdly, the dynamic of the gospel. With Jesus, it's not enough to seek the message without the messenger. You need both. Let's look at the first section of the account in verses 36 to 38, which we find the scandal. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Pharisees may have called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, but they still seem to have no problem inviting him to dinner. At least that's what Simon does, although we do need to recognize that what Simon does here is rather risky. Some of you may recall from the Gospel of John chapter 3 when Nicodemus, uh, who was also a Pharisee, wanted to meet Jesus uh, to find out more. He does so at nighttime in order that no one else would know. Well, Simon here obviously tries a different tact. This dinner invitation had more weight to it than an invitation that we might, uh, w- w- might come with a dinner invitation in today's world. In Jesus' day, an invitation to a meal was an invitation to a relationship. And not just to any relationship. If you invited someone to eat with you, it indicated that you were accepting that person into a relationship where the bonds were considered as close as the bond of family. Simon may have been a Pharisee, but it genuinely looks like he has an interest in this rabbi Jesus. So the dinner's in full swing. The conversation's flowing. The arrangement of the tables and the guests would have been somewhat different to what you and I are used to when we get together for dinner. First of all, no one's feet would have been actually under the table. The table would have been U-shaped with everyone at the table reclining, lying on their left side on on a couch, up on one elbow, head towards the table, feet stretched out away from the table, sandals off. And on the table was probably bread and wine along with a a main course into which you would dip your bread. And as the dinner guests ate and conversed, there would have been various and sundry people walking around. Not just servants, but people coming in off the street through the open doors. It was just accepted that there would be this walk-in, walk-out traffic during dinner parties. These people would hang around waiting to grab the scraps that might fall from the table onto the ground. Some of them would be there just to listen in on the conversations, the debates, the discussions going on. And that must have been how this woman got in. It isn't clear if she arrived close behind Jesus or a little later, but now that she's there, notice that Luke just slows everything down in the narrative to emphasize the repeated ongoing nature of each of the woman's actions. She was standing weeping. 
she began to wet Jesus' feet, indicating that she continued to do so. She was kissing him, again, pointing to that, the ongoing nature. And this all took time. And with every passing moment of the, her scandalous behavior, the ire and disgust of the other guests must have just increasingly been rising. Everyone probably recognized her. Luke refers to her as a woman of the city. That, in other words, she was a prostitute. In those days, it was entirely possible that she had been forced into the marketplace because she wasn't attached or wasn't identified to a man. Or she may have been sold into prostitution by her parents for money. But the bottom line was that everybody there knew her to be a whore. That meant, for starters, that she was obviously ritually unclean and impure and not a welcome guest at a dinner party thrown by one of the religious establishment. And then her behavior, the tears on his feet, the kissing just added insult to injury. It was absolutely scandalous. Scandalous, and it just gets worse, because once she noticed that her tears had fallen on his feet, she kneels down, she unties her hair, and starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. In that culture, letting your hair down was what you did in the bedroom. Joel Green, in his commentary, writes that the woman letting her hair down in this setting would have been on a par with women appearing topless in public today. And then, as if things weren't bad enough, the woman took the little flask of perfume, which she was wearing around her neck, that flask was part of the tools of her trade. It had a long, skinny neck, which meant it was almost impossible to pour, but you could smell the perfume. It was an expensive accessory of fragrance and beauty, a smell intended to make the woman attractive and desirable. But if you wanted to pour out the perfume, you had to break the neck of the flask, which then rendered the flask useless. But that's exactly what she does. She breaks the neck, she pours the perfume over his feet. And Jesus receives all the affection, all the love, all the adoration without any word of rejection, without any indication of rebuttal. There's not even a, well, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, but it's really not appropriate right here, right now. He readily receives her love. If we're honest, we probably could say we would agree with the dinner guest that we think her behavior was scandalous, but I suspect there's possibly also some Simon the Pharisee in some of us whereby we're also thinking, well, yeah, but what Jesus does here, how he responds is pretty scandalous too. Look at Simon's reaction, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this, woman were, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon thinks Jesus' behavior is simply incompatible with him being a prophet. But here's the issue for, for many of us. We struggle, too, with the scandalous, radical nature of God's great grace that's behind all that's going on here as well. The, the grace of God shows itself here to be uncomfortable and embarrassing. Jesus is socially disruptive here. His radical grace disrupts social situations. And well, a lot of us don't like our neat religious lives to be disrupted. We don't want church to be 
disrupted. So if and when disruptive people might come into our midst in our religious lives or in church, we see them as a problem or a challenge to be, quote, handled. Back in 2006, in our previous church in Dublin, we started a a Saturday congregation. It was imaginatively called Saturday at 5. I guess you can't guess what time we met at. It was intentionally geared towards 2030-somethings. And during that time, we were there. uh, God gathered together a great group of, of people who were a delight to pastor. But every so often during that service, Peter would show up. Peter was homeless. He was a frequent visitor to our front door at our house. Our house was in the grounds of the church there. He was there asking for money, asking for food. And during the Saturday service, he often would arrive during the time during the service where we'd take a coffee break in the middle of the service. But one Saturday, he came into the sanctuary during the service, actually during the sermon. I wasn't preaching that day. My Australian friend, Cole Marshall, who co-wrote the book Trellis and Vine that some of you have read, he was preaching. And Peter just starts speaking quite loudly during the sermon, a mix of questions and comments. And it would have been quite easy for me to get up and to try to quietly guide Peter to the back door, ask him to come back later, and I'd help him out. But I remember Cole immediately engaging with Peter, showing him the utmost respect, in no way dismissing him as a problem, but loving him. And it was a great example to me because I'm not sure I would have handled that situation anywhere near as gracefully as Cole did. Because I can be more like Simon the Pharisee than like Jesus. Many of us can be more like Simon the Pharisee than Jesus. In Simon's eyes, Jesus had just majorly blotted his copybook. There was no way in Simon's mind that Jesus could be a prophet. Simon had been willing to keep an open mind on Jesus up to this point. He'd been open to building a relationship with this teacher, hence the invitation to dinner. But now he figured his colleagues must have all been correct. He couldn't be a prophet. Look at what happens next, verse 40 to 43. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Luke told us in verse 39, right before this section, that Simon said what he had said only to himself. That is, it was more kind of in the thought area, that that he thought there was no way that Jesus could be a prophet. And right away, Jesus smashes the misconception apart. Right away, Jesus shows that he knew exactly what Simon had been thinking. Immediately, Simon's going to find out that Jesus was far more than a prophet, And to show Simon that, Jesus tells this parable. Parables, straightforward, right? Two debtors, one owed much more than the other, but both debts were forgiven. So who will love the money lender more? Simon gets the answer in one go. But through this story, Jesus wants Simon to set aside his concerns about the woman for a moment and do a little bit of self-reflection. Simon wants, Jesus wants Simon to see that he's a debtor too. A debtor who needed a savior just like the woman did. 
And in the end, it doesn't matter how far in debt you are. If you have nothing with which to pay your debt, you need help. And Jesus here isn't talking about money, of course. Jesus would have known from the banquet that had just been served that Simon was not short of a denarius or two. Simon was talking about a different, Jesus was talking about a different kind of debt, the debt of sin. Jesus wants Simon to acknowledge that he's a sinner too. That everyone is in debt to God, Jesus was saying. Everybody owes and nobody can pay. Now there might be some of us here this morning or perhaps watching this morning and frankly this is news to you and not particularly good news to be told that you're basically spiritually bankrupt but the bill is coming due is not good news. And part of the reason we miss that this is the reality for all of us is because we want to see ourselves and we want to see this world like Simon sees the world. We'll acknowledge that we're not perfect, but we can always find someone who's worse than us, someone who makes us look, well, better. We can always find a woman of the city. But Jesus pulls the rug right out from underneath every single one of us here. You can maybe think about it this way. Imagine a, a lethal spider comes and bites you in the middle of the night with its poison, kills you. Same night, a lion comes and mauls your neighbor, dismembering him and killing him. A little gruesome for a Sunday morning, but bear with me. So which of the two of you is more dead? And you say, well, that's a silly question. And you're right, it is. I mean, you could say that you're pretty dead and that you still look fairly nice, and your neighbor is gruesome dead, you know, blood and guts and all that stuff, but you're both dead. And Jesus is saying, Simon, okay, she may be gruesome dead with all her sin, and you may be pretty dead the way you've kind of tried to keep your life clean and so forth, but you're both dead. You're both lost. You both need a savior. Jesus was telling Simon, it's not enough to seek the message without the messenger. You need both. If you're just after my message without me, Simon, what you're telling me is that you think you can save yourself. You just need the seminar. You just need the notes. You just need the path to follow. You just need the message. And then you can take care of yourself. But you don't realize, Simon, whether you're irreligious or religious, you need a savior. It's not enough to seek the message without the messenger. You need both. But Jesus isn't finished here, is he? Because his main point, in a sense, was still to come. His main point was to show Simon, by way of the woman's example, what the dynamic of the gospel is, our third point. So look at verses 44 to 46. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. And she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus turns from looking at Simon to then just looking at the woman, but continuing to speak to Simon as if to say, Simon, if you want to know what the people in my family are like, then look at this woman. And he starts to lay out the differences. One by one, Jesus highlights how Simon had failed in this base, basic courtesy as Jesus' host, while the woman's actions were not only honorable by comparison, they were extravagant. 
As host, Simon should have provided water for his guests' feet, which he didn't. The woman hadn't provided water for his feet. She had washed his feet with her own tears. As host, Simon should have kissed his guests on the cheek or in the hand. He did neither to Jesus. This woman didn't kiss his cheek or his hand. She kissed his feet. As host, Simon should have anointed his guest's head with oil, but he didn't. This woman didn't anoint Jesus' head, but his feet. She didn't use normal olive oil. She used her costly perfume. And actually what she did with the perfume was more than just a financial sacrifice. Flask around that woman's neck, as I said earlier, was was the only power she had as a prostitute. Her only leverage was her attractiveness, her desirability. But she takes off that flask and she breaks it. Because this was not to just be one more sexual encounter for this woman. She was saying to Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then that changes everything. I'm giving you everything that I am, everything that I have. I want to do nothing to displease you. All I want to do is live a life that honors and pleases you. So the contrast between the actions of these two debtors could not have been greater. Simon was the host who was not really a host, while the woman was the host who wasn't even a guest. You see, Simon wanted a relationship, but only at a certain level, an intellectual level, a detached one. The woman came to Jesus with no conditions. He had all sorts of conditions. She came to him with her whole life. Simon just came to him with his intellect. She came for the personal encounter. Simon comes for an impersonal religion. Simon wanted a religion without tears, without letting your hair down, a religion without touching, and Jesus is saying to him, I don't have any of those. Jesus is more scandalized by what he sees in Simon's heart than what he saw in the woman's past. Because it's not enough to seek the message without the messenger. You need both. But it's Jesus' final words to Simon that unveil the dynamic of the gospel that's behind the woman's behavior here. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Here's the heart of the matter. Simons of the world don't actually think they need that much forgiveness because basically they think they live a good enough life. And certainly when they compare themselves to people like this woman, it only confirms their mindset. But Jesus wants Simon to see that actually his debt was just as great as the woman's. He may not have lived the sordid life that she had, but all his efforts to be his own savior, to be good enough, to think himself superior to others. Every time he thought that, every time he acted like that, every time he said something that reflected that, up went his debt. You see, our our debt with God goes up not only through our sin, but also through our self-righteousness. That every time we lose it with someone, because because we insisted on having our own way, up goes our debt. Every time someone needed our help, And we lazily justify sitting on the couch because we've had such a hard day. 
Up goes our debt. Every time we look down on people for some reason and think we're superior to them because of our money or our intellect or whatever reason, up goes our debt. Every time we tear down someone else's reputation because it somehow builds up ours, up goes our debt. Every time we lie because we know the truth will harm our reputation, up goes our debt. And once you start adding it all up, you realize that the debt for each one of us in reality is out of reach. A few years ago, I heard Tish Harrison Warren speak at the annual CCO a student conference called Jubilee out in, in uh, Pittsburgh. Tish is an Anglican priest. She's written some excellent books. I know some of you have read those. They, I highly recommend them. She now also has a weekly column in the New York Times. But at the conference, she was speaking from Genesis 3 on the fall. And in her talk, Tish made the comment that most of us are willing to admit that we're sinners, but we want to think that we're, quote, normal sinners, we have this idea that there's this norm or this median level of sin, and well, that's where we are. And we think that's acceptable. We think it, it's nothing to get too worked up about because there are lots of people who we see who we consider to be way above that norm in our minds. They're the bad people. In our minds, that the, these bad people aren't just the murderers, the adulterers, the abusers of the world. No, the bad people are the ones that we think of when we say, you know what's wrong with this world? It's people like fill in the blank. But here's the thing. Tish Harrison Warren said, if you believe in the biblical doctrine of sin, then you realize that at your core, you're actually no better than the what's wrong with the world people. Every single one of us has those what's wrong with the world people. And Harrison says, we're just the same. There's no such thing as a normal sinner. You can't be, you can be gruesome dead or pretty dead, but you're both dead. The dead of sin for every single one of us is out of reach. I wonder if you feel that. Do you really feel that? I have to tell you, looking at this passage again, I've preached on this passage before, but I felt it this week just going through it again because I want to think of myself as a normal sinner too. To grasp the absolute enormity of the debt that you owe God because of your sin. None of us really want to look at that because it's really a heavy thing to come to terms with. But here's the amazing good news, that the gospel message is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the complete bill. The debt was canceled because he paid it in full for all who put their trust in him. So we sing occasionally that hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I've always appreciated this quote from John Flavel, an English Presbyterian minister of 17th century. He said, Lord, if thou save me by Jesus Christ, thy justice will be fully satisfied at one full payment. But if thou damn me and require satisfaction at my hands, thou canst never receive it. I shall make but a dribbling payment, though I lie in hell to eternity and shall still be infinitely behind with thee. Is it not more for thy glory to receive it from Christ's hand than to require it at mine? One drop of his blood is more worth than all my polluted blood, end quote. 
And Flavel points out that if we reject the gift of God's forgiveness through Jesus, we spend eternity in hell paying off our debt, but we never pay it off. We never come close. An eternity in hell, and all we achieve, he says, is a dribbling payment, because that's how immense each of our debts are. But on the cross, Jesus paid the entire thing, the whole thing, so that in Christ you're debt-free. He paid the whole debt for anyone who will put their trust in him. I can't fathom what hell he endured to make full payment for me. But I'm left saying, Jesus, how could you love me like that? How could you endure all that for me? All I know that you, is that you did. I'm forgiven so, so much. And the only logical response to that is unfettered love in return. He or she who is forgiven much, forgiven little, loves little. He or she who is forgiven much and realizes it, loves much. And that's the dynamic of the gospel. If you're here today or you're watching today and in your honesty you say, yeah, I can see I'm more like Simon the Pharisee than the woman. Let, let me encourage you not, to not rest until God has opened your eyes to the extent of your debt. Not in a morbid way, but, but because until you see the debt and the extent of it, you'll hold Jesus off at a distance. He'll maybe show some interest in his message, but not the messenger. And Jesus says, you can't have one without the other. You need both. Here was a woman who saw the true extent of her debt and so wept tears to wash his feet, who kissed his feet, who gave up everything she had to follow him because she didn't just want the message. She wanted the messenger too. And may that be true of each one of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this account of this incident in your life. We thank you for how you got to the very heart of the issue of the matter for each of us. Whether we look at our past and we see more of the woman or more of the Pharisee, we pray that you would help us understand the enormity of our debt but the awesome, stunning good news that Jesus on the cross paid the full, full amount so that we could be forgiven, restored, redeemed, given eternal life. Lord, for any of us who are weak in our love for you and for others, help us to see that maybe the root of that is because we haven't understood and recognized and appreciated the enormity of your love for us may we experience this week an overwhelming sense of how much you love us through jesus and we ask this in his name amen